welcome to Ivy League Murders, where we deep dive on cases related to academia. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. My name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami grad, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. In Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. So, Laura, this week, we are focusing on Harvard University's Widener Library, and we're calling this episode The Pearl of Harvard. We kind of joke sometimes and say we have more cases about Harvard than all the other Ivies combined, and perhaps it's because this is our hometown, so these are very familiar places to us. It's kind of fun to do these cases of places that we've spent so much time. It's true, and we were actually in Harvard Square yesterday, and we were going to go and try to take pictures of the Widener, and it was curious because Harvard Yard, for the first time Ever. in my life, yeah. they asked us for Harvard IDs. They don't want anyone who's not Harvard going through Harvard Yard, and that's the first time. I know, which is very unusual because the school isn't even open right now. <laughs> so Laura and I were joking around about, like, we wonder if it's about Ivy League murders. <laughs> They're on to us. They're on to us. Our and sleuthing in Harvard yes. Square. Yes, and we were yeah. kind of dressed like secret spies we that really day. We were. We had our trench coats our on. Trench I think coats we looked, on. like, kind of suspicious. Yeah, you know? so, yeah, they called out security for us because we're that important. But Harvard Square has gotten downright scary. For the first time in my life, I didn't, I mean, I felt safe there. It wasn't that. Just it's gotten very, very sketchy. It has, and I think that's a result of COVID. But when we were growing up, we walked through Harvard Yard to go to school twice a day. I never never thought I would miss students, but I miss students. You miss students. And the Widener Library just looms over really all of Harvard Yard and the square. It's hard to understand the scale of this library. It, It really is. It's like this huge monolith. It's just huge and it's so almost intimidating in size. And that's just from the outside. We read that there's 57 miles of books in the Widener and that's pretty amazing. And actually, Widener's genesis was a direct result of the sinking of the Titanic. Then this is what's really interesting about the Widener and really about the book collection because it really was built to honor a great book collector. That's right. And so the Titanic set out on her maiden voyage from Southampton, England on April 10th of 1912. There were 2,224 passengers on board. And some members of very famous families like the Astors, the Guggenheims, and the Wideners were all in first class. Which, how much does that cost? We were we figured this out today, Sarah. It's about $63,000. Right, in today's, in today's money. money. Is and, it- and we've all seen the movie Titanic. I think they did a good job on set dressing anyway. But the descriptions of these staterooms, I mean, there were private lavatories. Everything was like filigreed iron. They had different, the one would be Louis XIV. They spared no expense in terms of 
decorating this. They this really ship. wanted it to look like a British manor or luxury hotel. So this was really almost supposed to be the finest floating luxury hotel. That's right. In fact, they called it the floating palace. So George and Eleanor Widener and their son Harry were on board in one of these very, very elegant stateroom suites, and they were on their way back from a trip to Europe. He was collecting books in Europe, wasn't he? I mean, this and really... this was Harry that was collecting Harry. Yeah, he was a great book collector. Interesting. He had a great love of books. The Titanic was thought to be unsinkable, Laura, and thus was not properly outfitted with sufficient life-saving measures i.e. enough lifeboats. So Laura, in the early morning of April 14, 1912, the Titanic foundered after hitting an iceberg in the North Atlantic Ocean. The enormous vessel cantilevered to one side, leaving the lifeboats on the other side unusable. In None. other words, like these lifeboats were in the water, these were suspended. Right, so only high. half were available. So yeah. only, yeah. So And they had an inefficient number of lifeboats to begin with because they thought Nothing's going to sink this ship. Right. As it became clear that the unsinkable was sinking, women and children were chosen to take the remaining lifeboats. Of the 2,000 plus passengers, 1,500 people perished in that 28 degree water. Mm. Laura, a human being can only survive about three or four minutes in water that cold before succumbing to hypothermia. Of its notable victims were George Widener and his son, Harry Elkins Widener. They both perished that night in the tragedy. The night of the sinking, the Wideners had hosted a dinner in honor of the captain of the Titanic, Edward Smith. The restaurant of the Titanic was dubbed the Ritz and served oysters, roasted squab. I just think it's so interesting that the Wideners, you had found that out, that the Wideners had hosted a dinner party that night for the captain of the Titanic, right. the night of the sinking. In yeah. this special restaurant, which was only available for the first class. That's right. Where they could eat all day and That's pay right. a little extra for, which was dubbed the Ritz. So, Laura, the Wideners were considered nouveau riche. So we looked into how they made their money, which was kind of interesting. So George's father, Peter Widener, or P-A-B. So George's father, Peter Widener, or P.A.B., started out as a humble butcher in Philadelphia. He then expanded and opened several butcheries. Widener, who was pretty politically savvy, he won a contract to provide mutton to the Union troops who were stationed around Philly. So he made about 50 grand, which is worth about a million and a half today. Then he hooked up with a guy named William Elkins, who was also an entrepreneur, and they invested the money into horse cars. Looked into horse cars are kind of interesting. They're kind of like the pre-train, yes. pre-transits. Mm. They're like basically long horse carriages that were drawn by horses and they could fit up to about 15 passengers. And it was basically like transport prior to the trains. Right, and right. They made a lot of money, but with the advent of trains, they made even more money. Well, with the advent of trains, Elkins and Widener formed the Philadelphia Traction Company in 1883. The same year, and to keep it all in the family, Pab's son married William Elkins' daughter, Eleanor. So now, two enormous fortunes united two of Philadelphia's most prestigious families. Whether they were in love was anyone's guess. That's right. Whether Eleanor and George were in love, or whether it was kind of this arranged, you're going to marry this guy... 
you're going to marry this woman. Right, keep you know, it all who, in the family, keep, keep it the all business. in the family. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, marriage was considered a lot different back then. Mm-hmm. So both Elkins and Widener, they weren't just into trains. They were into U.S. steel, U.S. transport. In other words, they were kind of like robber barons, mm-hmm. and they were just enormously wealthy. And I found this very interesting, that PAB, with J.P. Morgan, invested in White Star, the company that made the Titanic. So the, the Titanic cost about $7.5 million back then. You had found that. That's about $180 million today. But can you imagine being PAB, knowing that you invested in the boat that sank and you lost your son and your grandson on that. I mean, I can't imagine the no. survivor's guilt on that. No, he was never the same. Both George and Harry attended Harvard, and in his will, Harry left his enormous book collection to Harvard. Eleanor Widener, who survived the Titanic, donated the books. So basically, Eleanor Widener approached Harvard and said, look, I have a gazillion books. And so Harvard was like, well, thanks very much, but we don't have any place to put them. And their library at the time, which was called Gore Hall, was like small and crumbling. And so Eleanor Widener's response was, well, you know what? I'll build you a library. So since its inception in 1915, the Widener has been home to rumors, speculation, and according to some accounts, ghosts. We'll cover the latter with our friends from Hauntingly Yours who specialize in the paranormal. That's going to be episode two. With our good friend, Danny. He's got some very juicy, spooky stories. And he's an amazing storyteller. So we really look forward to that. And we're gearing up for Halloween here, by the way. Yes. Just to give you a hint. As you walk up the wide and elegant staircase of Widener, one is greeted on either side by murals painted by John Singer Sargent, commissioned in 1920. Death and Victory and Entering War. Oh, Laura, I love Sargent. He was an Edwardian portrait artist, and he painted one of my favorite paintings, which is in the MFA, and it's of the Boyt daughters. It is like a child with her doll on this rug. There's maids in the back. It's sort of semi-abstract, but very beautiful. You can see the kind of like light in the reflections. It is just absolutely beautiful. And it's huge. I just love Sargent. And we'll post that portrait of the Boyd daughters in our Facebook as well as the uh, As well as the portraits that are in the Widener. He also did a portrait of Isabella Stewart Gardner, which hangs in the Gardner Museum. So that's another episode that... Oh, definitely. Yeah. (laughs) With Laura and I are going to spend six months researching. (laughs) So anyway, back to the Widener. So as we mentioned, the Widener contains 57 miles of books. This thing is bloody enormous. It really is. And I've mentioned in a past episode, my mother retired from the Widener. That's right. She worked there for 20 years. For 20 years. And so I was forced on a few spring breaks and Christmas breaks to work myself in the Widener. I did not at 18 have an appreciation for. And it is enormous. It's really funny. I feel like, okay, as an undergrad, I studied in the Lamont Library. It's kind of a modern 60s kind of thing. I feel like Widener was just so big and kind of intimidating. It is intimidating. It's just so large. There's also, so the reading room, there's a memorial to Harry Elkins Widener, the son, with all of the books. And this place just looks like like gothic cathedral in the middle of it and in it there's a portrait of harry elkins widener and 
our friend will talk about what happens when that portrait gets <laughs> moved. That's in episode two. And then I think there's some homage to George as well, but Harry is really featured. He's, pretty, yeah. Pretty prominent. And what, he had some pretty famous books, didn't he, Sarah? He did. He had, this gives me shivers, Laura. He had Shakespeare's first folio, original copies. That's in the Widener, Shakespeare's right. sonnets. That is just, that's like touching God to me. Original Dickens? Original Dickens. There's Charlotte Bronte's first editions. It's just like a bibliophile's dream come true. Yeah. So as part of her endowment, Eleanor Widener stated that nothing could be changed on the exterior. I love that she was so kind of like really threw her weight around about how. What did she say about the exterior of the library? She said, you'll build a library to my liking. Yes. Like I'm building you my my, favorite library, not yours. So in part of the caveat was like, you cannot change any of the the exterior. I'm paraphrasing. I'll find the quote and post it. And I know this, especially from my mother, that whenever they've had to do any work in the widener it creates a lot of problems oh totally because nothing not a brick can be changed in the exterior so they've had to build tunnels underground to accommodate all the books like and central air conditioning and that kind of right it's like a nightmare if they have to do any kind of renovations. they actually had to make some alteration and find some little thing in the will of the will to even put central ac and that took them years to do because they're not allowed to change the structure i love that Eleanor Widener is throwing her weight around even beyond the grave. Yeah, she was a pretty powerful woman. (laughs) One thing that I had read, there were a few interesting fun facts about the Widener that I thought was interesting. The Widener also has a copy of the Gutenberg Bible. And in 1969, there was an attempted robbery of of the Bible uh that was circumvented. And the other thing, and Laura, you'll like this part, okay, (laughs) there's something called the XR room. There was for years where they kept, like, the Playboys, and they kept a manifesto on communist sex practices. I love that. They also had a book, apparently, of Catherine the Great's lewd furniture. Like, when it opens at the Widener's clothes right now. I was just saying, how do we get in there? (laughs) And I actually know this. People have asked me this question. They always say to me, is that a myth? And as you know, Sarah, I know this for a fact because my mother actually delivered some very illicit mail to that room. And so we do know that this for a fact. So have you ever spent any time in the X room, Sarah? Uh, No, no, I haven't. And here's the the other little salacious fact about the Widener is, this is what I've heard, not my experience, but what happens in the Widener stacks, Laura, stays in the Widener stacks. So I don't know from personal experience. All right, Sarah, enough about your personal exploits in college. (laughs) Back to more serious things. At the 1915 dedication, Eleanor Widener met Alexander Hamilton Rice Jr. What can you tell us about him, Sarah? So Rice was a surgeon and explorer. He was an adventurer and he mapped unknown parts of the Amazon. So the beautiful and widowed Eleanor Widener met the dashing adventurer in June of 1915 and they married in October of the same year. So at her wedding, Eleanor wore a $750,000 string of exceedingly rare, uncultured pearls that she had saved from the Titanic. And it is our honor and our pleasure to introduce a very good friend of mine, Ron Winston. Ron is Harry Winston's son. Harry Winston was the famous jeweler. And we are sitting in his beautiful house in Westchester. 
So it's my pleasure and my honor to welcome Ronald Winston to the podcast. Hello, Ronald. Hello. How are you, Sarah? I'm very well. And can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your father, Harry Winston, the famous jeweler? I really did, took my father for granted, and I didn't realize he was well-known. And I remember being in Palm Beach, and there was a radio broadcast that said that New York jeweler Harry Winston had bought the McLean estate, which included the Hope Diamond, for some then catastrophic sum of money, like a million dollars or two million dollars. And I realized that he was famous. Uh, I really didn't know. I was probably eight, maybe nine and so then I, you know, I saw him in a different light as a, as a child. And at some point, you had told me that he had bought the pearls that Eleanor Widener wore in almost every picture she appears in. I know that Eleanor Widener passed away in 1937. You imagine he bought those pearls in maybe the 1940s? I would guess. I have to probably research that a little bit. Probably in the 40s, I remember seeing them in the 50s, and the, the pearls were incredibly large and lustrous, and they were natural pearls. They weren't cultured the way Mikimoto had done in the early part of the 20th century, which kind of ruined the pearl market for decades because people lost confidence. Was it real? Was it cultured? Were you able ever to hold these pearls in your hand, Ron? I did, yeah. My father showed them to me. Amazing. He told me the story. Of course, he somehow, he, he loved telling stories, and he was a great storyteller, particularly after he'd had a whiskey. <laughs> and he um, he told me the story. He said, those, those pearls have quite a history. Unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't know, he confused Harry Widener, the namesake of the famous library at Harvard for his dad, George Widener. And so the story that he told me is that Widener had been on his honeymoon in Europe and had given the pearls to his would-be wife or his wife, when in fact Harry died a bachelor and never married. So the actual story was the story about George Widener, the father, and Harry, the son, and the mother, Eleanor Elkins Widener. And what happened is they boarded the ship in Cherbourg. We all know the story of what happened. To the Titanic, obviously. To the Titanic, I should. So they're on the Titanic the evening of the 14th and 15th of April. And I think the ship began sinking in the early hours of the morning of the 15th. And a tax time in America, of course, nobody was really thinking about that. And the lifeboats went away, women and children first, and most men were not on the lifeboats because the ship had tilted, and they couldn't get the lifeboats off on the, I'm not sure which side, but probably the starboard side. George Wagner is waving goodbye to his wife, and suddenly she reaches around her neck and says, George, my pearls! George kind of shrugs. <laughs> That's true love for you. It sure is. I, the tilting deck said, George, run down to the stateroom. You must get them. And so poor George dutifully went down to the stateroom, which I don't know if it's filling with water, but it's certainly very difficult to get down there. Came back on deck with this magnificent set of natural pearls that had taken years and years to collect. And at that point, the lifeboat was probably 50 feet off from the side of the boat. 
and he comes up holding the pearls and he, he shrugs again like what am I going to do and so Eleanor his wife said throw them George winds up with his best baseball pitch and throws them and she misses them and they wrap around the bow sprit of this little lifeboat. The pearls miss the, the like, lifeboat. No, the pearls miss Eleanor and she didn't catch them, but they wrapped around the bowsprit of the lifeboat and she reached over and grabbed them. And my father kind of looked at me and smiled and said, Darling, they almost went back to the ocean from whence they came. <laughs> What made these pearls so unique? I know that they were they not were very cultured. very large, very perfect. They weren't dimple. They were the creme de la creme of the fisheries, which probably came from the Middle East, from the Persian Gulf, where a lot of pearl fisheries were, and it's a thing that's no longer done anymore. It's a, it's not, it's a dead industry. And how long did your father own them? I don't really know. He probably owned them, I would say, 10 years, because I saw them probably in the early 50s, and he probably bought them in the early 40s. Do you know what became of them? Or He sold them. I think he sold them to a Middle Eastern client. I don't know at this moment. And then just, just so our listeners know, you went to Harvard, and then you, so you actually got to experience the Widener Library firsthand. I did. I never really, maybe once, but other than that, not got into the famous stacks of Widener Library. <laughs> never saw the pornography collection. <laughs> you never made it to the XR room? Me, <laughs> improperly educated gentleman. <laughs> and I do remember working there. Mostly I worked in, in not in Widener, but in Lamont Library next door, which was very modern and light. And Widener was dark and dungeony, and it was, it was sort of designed like an Athenian palace. Did you feel a connection to the library since you had been connected to the pearls and to the history? I'm not sure I really thought about it then. Interesting. Because I hadn't gone to Harvard yet. It was probably early 50s. Uh-huh. And I went there in 59. And I, I guess I'd forgotten about the story, but I reimagined it. And we had read a little side note on Harry Winston, that at the age of, is it, so tell us a little bit about your father, because it, to me, it's a marvelous sort of rags to riches well, story. Well, he was a great rags to riches story. They came over from Europe in probably 1889 or 90. My father was born on the Lower East Side, and the family was desperately poor. Sort of cold water flat, you know. I guess, yeah, yeah. they lived on Essex Street, a cold water flat, family of six, four children, and they lived on, unbelievably, a dollar a day My. profit from their little jewelry store, food, clothing, and shelter. I had read that your father spotted a emerald <laughs> in a pawn shop and bought it for a quarter, and it was worth a lot more. Is when, that a true when, story? When it, it is a true story. When he was 12. When he was 12. Yeah. That is a true story. Uh, I think that happened in New York, and um, they later moved to California in the very early days of L.A., and he made a huge profit for the family. My grandfather was not a very good business person. He was always telling people, oh, you shouldn't buy that diamond ring. You should go home and feed your family. (laughs) His family was starving. And his father's name was Jacob Weinstein, is that correct? That's right. And so, and didn't Jacob warn Harry about his sort of obsession with jewels? 
Well, well, he, he was a very philosophical guy, reflective, and he always said to my father, you know, you make too much money and one day your possessions will possess you. Mm. That's uh, sort of the theme of oftentimes on Ivy League murders, don't yeah. you think? Oh, yes. We, we explore yeah. that a lot. And sometimes that can be the case, but not always. Ron, it has been absolutely wonderful An seeing honor. you and speaking with you. And you really do honor us with your presence. Well, the pleasure is mine. I love to tell the stories. <laughs> Thank you for having us here. Thank you. So, wow, what an honor to talk to Ron. That was just awesome. And I hope you guys have enjoyed this episode. It's a little offbeat, you know, it's a little off our, our beaten path, I think. And this is uh, Harvard's Widener, the uh, the Pearl of Harvard. We couldn't pass up an opportunity to talk about these pearls and in the history of Harvard. But this is really just part of our episode because in the second half, we're going to really talk about some of the mysteries and some of the hauntings and some of the paranormal things that have happened at Harvard over the hundreds of years. And that's with Denny O'Rourke. And his podcast is called Hauntingly Yours. And if you hold on, we'll play you his trailer. So you will hear from us next week. Yes, that's right. So stay safe and stay spooky. Edgar Allan Poe once wrote, The boundaries which divide life from death are at best shadowy and vague. Who shall say where the one ends and where the other begins? Take a journey with me, D.C. O'Rourke, your personal guide for the paranormal. We will go all around the globe looking for haunted places. We will break down the history and ghostly lore together from within the comforts of wherever you're listening from. We will find the secrets that have been hiding within the walls of these places for so long in my podcast, Haunt Me Yours, a podcast for the paranormal where the spirits are always waiting. Available on all listening platforms, please do not forget to review and subscribe.